Hi, listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by Dougie Center, the National Grief Center for Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. For those of you who've been listening to the show for a while, today's guest will be a familiar voice. Hope Edelman first joined me and Brennan Wood, the executive director of Dougie Center, for an episode back in April of 2019. On that episode, we talked about how they met through Hope's first book, Motherless Daughters, which came out over two decades ago. This time, Hope and I are talking about her latest book, The Aftergrief, Finding Your Way Along the Long Arc of Loss. Hope has been writing, speaking, and leading workshops and retreats in the bereavement field for over 25 years. She was 17 when she lost her mother to breast cancer and 40 when her father died. These losses inspired her to offer grief education and support to those who have not and cannot otherwise receive it. Hope and I talk about the inspiration behind the after grief and the history of how we as a society have defined, conceptualized, and interacted with grief over time. We also explore what hope means by new old grief and how she sees the pandemic affecting the ways that we grieve individually and collectively. Hope, thank you for joining me on Grief Out Loud for the second time. This is a repeat performance for you, so I'm so excited to have this conversation. It is my pleasure to be here. So let's start with the origin story of your new book, The After Grief, and what what was the inspiration for this book? I have to say the inspiration was um, becoming a grief and loss coach and starting to run motherless daughters retreats in 2016. And observing patterns of behavior among adults who were bereaved when young, meaning childhood, adolescence, young adulthood. And also seeing how a lot of the patterns that I had observed among motherless daughters were also showing up in anyone who'd lost a parent or even a sibling when they were young over the long term. And by that, I mean 10 years later, 20 years later, 30 years later. And they wanted to talk about how that loss had shaped them, how it continued to affect them and how it continued to show up in their lives all those years later. I wanted, I was looking for some way to just uh, codify what I was observing. The book wasn't originally called The Aftergrief. The book went through several iterations, but when I ultimately realized what I was writing about, we coined the term aftergrief, which is this phase that comes after the most acute distress of grief starts to diminish and then extends for the rest of your life. And that's where you renegotiate your relationship with a loss. You revisit it. You revise your story. I'm very influenced by how we tell the stories of loss because that becomes a part of our identity. And so the book is also about how our stories of loss change over time because mine did quite a bit. Uh, 1981, my mother died of breast cancer when I was 17. She was 42. And I came to look at those set of facts very differently over as the decades started to unroll. Yeah, I always appreciate how you talk about there's the facts of your story, and then there's the context and the story of the story and how that often changes. There are the facts of the story, and, and there are your relationship to those facts and what they mean to you. 
and the facts don't change over time. My mom will always have died of breast cancer in 1981 when she was, I was 17 and she was 42. But those facts have looked very different to me at different times in my life. They looked one way when I was 17 and I thought 42 was really old. (laughs) They looked another way when I became a mother myself and I could see my mother's experience in a different way. And they looked really different when I approached and passed the age of 42 myself. One of the things that always, that strikes me when you talk about the after grief and when I, when I read the book is I almost picture the after grief as a place, like a location. And I appreciate that idea of, we think of, of grief that we carry with us as a location we can go to or a location that comes to us or a location we get forced into sometimes that we weren't maybe planning on going there. Not just something that's like wrong with us. I think it is a place in our spirit or our psyche that we can visit and depart from and visit and depart from. Um, I do think of it that way. I also think of the aftergrief as a very distinct place in the Topanga Canyon where I live because I was driving down the road to Pacific Coast Highway when I came up with the title. So every time I go around that bend now in the canyon heading downhill, that's that's the place that I think of as the aftergrief because I remember exactly where I, I thought of the book title. But I do think it's a place within inside ourselves as well. Mm. The other part of your book that was really fascinating to me was how you lay out this historical and social context of not the fact that grief happens to us, but how we respond to grief and what the expectations are around how we should be responding to grief. And so you really, you get into like, I think about the the 1918 pandemic and the early world wars and what was happening around the model of what grief is supposed to look like, this breaking bonds model to like completely divest with the relationship of the person who died. And I I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. Yes, I can. But first, I want to say that those chapters where I talk about the history of grief theory and I dial back to the beginning of the 20th century is not exclusively my work. I'm standing on the shoulders of a couple of giants there. One of them is Liat Granek, who's a health psychologist who has extensively studied the history of grief from a psychological perspective, and also Tony Walter, a sociologist and historian in Britain who's written about it extensively as well. Up until the 19-teens, grief was considered more of a social experience. There were elaborate mourning rituals that families followed. I went down the rabbit hole of Victorian mourning practices and bereavement behaviors, and they were very intricate. Most of them fell on the females in the household, mainly middle and upper class women, but they had thick books that they kept in every house that gave them the rules they were supposed to follow, everything from how to decorate your house to how long you would stay in mourning, like two weeks for a cousin up to two years for a spouse or child, and the dress that you would wear. For the most part, men wore black armbands, which we sometimes see now in the sports world when a teammate dies, that's a holdover. But the women would be in full morning dress. And there were companies that created the black material, you know, to their black parasols and black earrings and, you know, black shoes. And they would start in black and they, which indicated in public that you were in a state of high mourning. So you had a special status. And then you would go into states of mid and low mourning where you could shade down into gray and purples until the end of your mourning period. And that that was really came into vogue with Queen Victoria and her mourning for King Albert, but it pervaded the Western world at that time. But then a couple of things happened in the 19-teens and in a very short period of time, really just about five years. 1914, World War I broke out and it was chemical warfare for the first time. Large numbers of people 
were dying at once and they were dying far from home. Now this happened in the US Civil War, but people tended to be to die closer to their homes so they could still be buried maybe in the family plot, not always. This was impossible because people were dying in other countries. They would be buried where they fell. And so people could not depend on their familiar funerary rituals and burial and care of the body. So 1914 to 1918 was World War I. Now in 1917, right in the midst of that, Sigmund Freud published a paper called Mourning and Melancholia. And in it, he set out to distinguish between what he believed was mourning and depression, because they often look so much the same, but he saw them as very different responses. But in that paper, he talked about mourning as a sequential linear process that was very internal because he was a psychoanalyst. That was his orientation. And he had observed this in his patients or his clients, that they seemed to um, need to detach their emotional investment in the loved one who died, take it back, and then reattach to somebody else. Now, that makes sense when we think about a divorce or a breakup that you need to detach your emotions from that person because the relationship is no more. Everyone says be alone for a while and then you'll find somebody else and you'll invest in them in a similar, you know, or maybe different way. That was where the phrase, the work of mourning developed because it was an effortful internal individual process. That caught on like wildfire and psychoanalysts for the next 20 or 30 years were looking at grief that way and people who didn't experience that progression of events were often labeled to be abnormal grievers or unresolved grievers or incomplete grievers. So that was a very important paper. But then what else also happened? The Spanish flu pandemic of 1918-19. It devastated the globe. 50 million people died. 675,000 in the United States. It would sometimes take an entire family down in a very short period of time. And just like today, Who knew when I went down the second rabbit hole for the flu pandemic that what I learned would become so relevant 100 years later? I didn't know. Just like today, people couldn't gather in public. They could not attend funerals. Some cities had so many deaths. This was a very virulent strain, and it often attacked younger people. Mass burials occurred in some cities, so there couldn't even be individual funerals. And all of the comforting rituals that people relied on to care for their dead, to bury their dead, and to mourn their dead fell apart. The Victorian rituals couldn't be maintained anymore. It would be too expensive and too time-consuming. You'd be in mourning constantly for two or three people at a time. Your mourning periods would, you know, bump up against each other, and and you'd never get out of mourning. Those rituals and those traditions really started to loosen. And at the same time, women's suffrage was growing, and middle-class women were saying, hey, why is there all the responsibility on us? to do all this work. And so they were pushing against that. So all four of those events between um, 1914 to 1919 or shading into 1920 were um, very important in changing the orientation around grief. Then there were other things happening at the same time. Burials were moving from, and and caretaking of the dead were moving from the home into funeral parlors. Care for the terminally ill was moving into institutions rather than the home. All of these things were happening at once. The modernism was taking over. That was also very important. Modernism was very progress-oriented, very oriented in capitalism. Get people back into the workplace as soon as possible. You can't do that if you have two-week mourning periods. You know, you they shortened. All of this was happening in the first quarter of the 20th century. And that lingered for a long time. But I, I will say just, you know, ironically, 
In the mid-1920s, um, Freud wrote a letter to one of his friends about experiencing the death of his daughter, Sophie, in the Spanish flu pandemic and the death of her little son a few years later. I believe it was to tuberculosis. He said, essentially, what I thought about mourning isn't true. We don't let go of the people that we loved and move on and reinvest in someone else. We carry them with us forever. But by that point, it was too late. His ideas had developed a life of their own, and they led over progressively over the next decades to what we became came to know as the five stages of grief. And we can talk about that too. But it really wasn't until 80 years later, almost 80 years later, 75 years later in the 1990s, when grief theory moved into this idea of continuing bonds and maintaining relationships to our loved ones, that we dialed all the way back to the beginning of the century and started reclaiming some of the practices that we had abandoned for all that time as a culture, which was like the romantics tried to stay in touch with their deceased loved ones. They still felt very connected to them after they died. And you know, that was the age of seances and mediums. You know, that was the heyday when we were trying to communicate with the dead because we believed in the possibility of an ongoing connection with them rather than cutting our ties. That's a very long answer, but I want it to be comprehensive because I think it's important to understand. No, I, I appreciate it because I read, I read the book I, and dates never stick in my head. And so I appreciate hearing it in the synopsis again. That was one of the most easy to understand history lessons I have experienced. So thank you. And I hadn't thought about this when I was reading your book, but as you were talking, you know, in the early 1900s, 1920s, there was so, like, it was an overwhelming amount of people dying in the wars, in the pandemic. And it, it in this moment, it almost makes sense to me that there would be this urge to find a neat and tidy way to talk about grief and to talk about what grief is supposed to look like, because it was just so much. Yeah, I think it was seductive. You talked about this a little bit, you touched on it, but I, I wonder what other parallels do you see happening now for us in the COVID-19 pandemic where there, there seems to be a lot of things that are, are similar to that time period? Well, people are grieving alone or in small pods like they did in the past. I think technology makes it quite different, of course, than 1918-19. I mean, one of the things that we've discovered is that what we need to do in order to minimize a virus is not that different from what we did in 1918-19, save for the vaccines, which was social distancing and masking. But I do think that technology is helpful or will be helpful in some ways. I mean, we see now people doing Zoom funerals and Zoom memorials, and it is a poor substitute for being in human contact and being able to sit in a room and grieve as a village. But what my hope is that we will after this pandemic ends, and it will end eventually because pandemics, even the Black Death, don't last forever. I would like to see hybrid funerals and memorials where those who can attend in person do and make that a priority. And those who can't because they can't travel or leave their jobs or leave their children or they're disabled can still be part of it and still participate in the service through some kind of live streaming or Zoom and that we will have hybrids so that the village can expand that way. I wanted to go back to what you you mentioned at the end of your history lesson about how we moved <laughs> into this model of continuing bonds of this 
I don't know, sort of realization, like maybe it's not that bad if we stay connected to the memory of the person. Maybe it's not that bad if we carry them forward with us into our lives. And wondering what are the ways that you've done that in your own life with the death of your mother? Well, I want to start by saying, no, it's not bad at all. In fact, it's necessary. What's bad was trying to break the bonds. And therapists began recognizing that it was causing people more pain to think that they needed to let go and move on. I still hear from people now saying, I haven't let go. I need to let go. And I say, what what would that look like to you? What would letting go look like? Because does it mean you're never going to think about your loved one again? They say, no, letting go of the pain. I said, well, then let's talk about how we can work through some of the grief. But letting go of the person, that's you know, that's, and letting go of the love, is that what it means? Because we don't want to let go of the love we felt for that person. I I mean, only if that love is causing us pain and that's where people feel like, you know, they need to let go, to let go of the pain is what they want. But how have I carried them forward? Oh, in many different ways. I mean, I, both of my parents are gone now. My father died when I was 40. I think about them all the time. I have mementos of theirs all over my house. So I'm reminded. Um, Both of my daughters are named for my mother, one after her first name, one after her middle name. All the work I do is testimony to my mother. I mean, I'm helping other women and adults, you know, with parent loss. So I feel like I honor them all the time through the work that I do and have been doing for more than 25 years. Um, And I think about what values they instilled in me that I'd like to carry forward. Not all of their values, you know, because some of them aren't mine, you know. But my mother was extremely altruistic. She was like a professional volunteer. So volunteer work is important to me doing, you know, always having a pro bono arm of my work is very important to me. And my mom was an educator and teaching. I've been a nonfiction writing instructor for many years, and I really love teaching. And I feel very connected to her when I'm in a classroom because I know how much she taught music. So very different. And I also have recently created a playlist of songs that I remember you know, my mom listening to or listening to with her. And I just have a playlist called Mom Songs. And if I want to feel close to her, I can play those songs. Mm. That comes up in my young adult groups all the time. People making Spotify playlists. Really? Of songs that either remind them of the person or that the person loved, or just songs that help them feel their feelings. And when they carve out some time to really attend to their grief or to think about their person, they play the playlist. So you are part of a trend, Hope. That's nice. (laughs) So I'm part millennial, apparently. You mentioned the motherless daughters retreats that you run um, and the grief coaching that you're doing. And, and you talked about when people say, I just need to let go. And I, and I, I love the discernment there of like, are, are you wanting to let go of the person and the love or wanting to let go of maybe the guilt or the shame or the pain? And another phrase that I hear a lot is I'm just stuck. I'm stuck in my grief or uh, towards someone else. They're so stuck in their grief. And what would you hear that? What do you hear? And how do you support people in working through that concept? Well, when someone says that person is stuck in their grief, it's a judgment, of course. And it also speaks to their discomfort more than the other person's distress. So I will talk with them about what their discomfort around that is, because it sounds like they want that person to hurry up for a reason. And sometimes the reason is just because they want their friend or relative to feel better. But then I need to, you know, then I'll talk with them about how everyone grieves at a different pace in a different way. And, and a grief response is based on so many factors. Let's look at some of the factors that your friend is struggling with. Was it a sudden violent loss? Well, then we can't expect them to be, you know, moving through grief and, and, and look normal to you in a short period of time, because they're also dealing with trauma. For example, if someone says to me, I feel stuck in my grief, I want to parse that out and see what they mean, because oftentimes they have an idea of what grief is. It may be from books or media 
or prior experience. Everyone has a different idea of what grief is. You know, I hear men saying frequently, I never grieved my father, for example. And I say, well, tell me what, what you mean by never grieving. What were, what were you expecting to do that you didn't do? Well, I didn't have, you know, outbursts of crying. That's a more feminine model of grief. And I say, well, tell me about what you did after your dad died. Well, you know, I went to his house and I spent weeks cleaning out his garage and taking things from his, you know, tool, tool shed. And, and I say, well, let me, let me talk to you about how the masculine model of grief, because that is an example of the masculine model of grief, which is problem solving and doing. Were you thinking about your father? Were you reminiscing as you did this? And yes, I could remember every story, every time we worked with that tool together. I said, I want to just ask you to consider that that might have been a form of grieving. You know, people have a very specific idea of what grief should look like. And it's often very feminine. You know, it's like wailing and beating your chest and crying. But if they were young when a loss occurred and they say, I never grieved, I say, I believe that we all grieve to the best of our ability at any point in time. And as a child, your ability may have been very limited for a number of reasons. One may be that you didn't even understand what death meant yet. Maybe you were that young, or maybe you didn't have adults around you to support you. Child will typically not fall apart emotionally unless they feel there is a stable adult to help them contain those emotions. And if your surviving caretaker does not look stable to you, or if you've gotten indications that if you break down, they will break down, then a child typically won't express their emotions, at least not in the home. And maybe there wasn't someone outside the home, like a teacher or a neighbor or an extended family member or a coach or a school counselor that could contain that for them. So they'll postpone it. And it may be, in fact, that they didn't grieve to the extent that they could have at that time, and they need to pick up those pieces later. But to say, I never grieved for someone is a statement that I, you know, I try to work with and reframe just a little bit. The same thing with, I feel stuck in my grief. Well, where do you feel stuck? They, they, and they might say, I cried for a year and then I was felt pretty much okay. And I feel like if I really loved that person, I'd be sadder. But then we talk about the times that grief spikes have come up over the years. I say, well, maybe your temperament or your experience or your relationship with that person was such that you had one year of really acute grief and you had support that then helped you move into the after grief and now you're experiencing the after grief. It, those statements have a lot to do with people's expectations of what grief should look like. And it looks so different for every person. You, you encounter that too, don't you? I mean, you probably lead a group and everyone's grieving in a different way and on a different timeline, right? Yeah, and I think about the pressure that we put on ourselves and that we pickup that people are putting on us. I was thinking about what you were saying about like a more feminine or a more masculine model of grieving and how those expectations don't fit with the with people's experience of gender, right? Gender experience can be so fluid. And so if you are someone who's been socialized as a woman in the world with the expectations of that binary gender category, and you find yourself being someone who's much more of a doer than a, right. you know, than right. a beating your chest and crying and like that confusion too. And so, yeah, it's like, it's like right. when I hear I didn't grieve, I also wonder what did you not get in your grief that you needed? What were you not receiving from family and friends and society and, and to help bring it to be less of like what you did or didn't do that it's all on you and what were you needing and what did you not even know you needed <laughs> that you weren't able to access? What's interesting is this ties back to what we were talking earlier about history, because in the 19th century, I don't think a lot of our ancestors were thinking, did I grieve properly or not? Partly because they had all of these social rituals to follow, so at least they could feel they did that properly. 
But the, the concern back then was much more about honoring the loved one who died and ensuring the religiously the safe passage of their soul to where, wherever you believed they were going. They were much more concerned about the soul of the departed than they were about their own process. Mm-hmm. And that shifted in, in large part because of psychoanalysis, which made mourning a very internal individual process. And then when it becomes that, there is the perception that you can do it right or you can do it wrong. You mentioned the term uh, acute grief and after grief, and you also write about the term new old grief. Could you explain what that is? Yes. um, I distinguish in the book between what I call new grief, old grief, and new old grief, which is a separate, completely separate category. New grief is fresh grief. It's what we're feeling, I think, right after someone dies. It's very person specific. You know, it's missing that person who just died and what you shared together, longing for them dreaming about them, um, having disturbances in sleep or appetite, feeling helpless, feeling despair, you know, all the, what we would call acute grief. And that will last, you know, depending on the person, anywhere from a few weeks to a few months to a year or two, and depending on your relationship and your dependence on them. But after a period of time, we all feel, most of us, I should say, most of us feel ourselves moving out of that And waking up in the morning, it might not be the first thing we think of every day. It might not, you know, be that crushing realization. First thing, we laugh again. We make plans for the future. We can start imagining what the future might look like without that person in it. Most of us will just sort of shade into what is often referred to as the new normal, which is life without this person. We're never going to go back to where we were before because the before had that person in it. But a number of elements of our life will be reclaimed, picked up, and we'll move forward. That's what I call the after grief. But in that after grief, we will have often cyclical events like anniversaries or holidays, or sometimes what is are called sneak attacks, where we catch a whiff of perfume, or we see someone who looks like our dad or our brother out in public, and we have this, you know, clenching in the stomach, you know, where it feels like another grief response. Those are called grief spikes or grief surges. And that's really, really normal. I call those episodes of old grief because we're having a response in the present that's related to a loss in the past. I call it old grief. But then there's this other category that I call new old grief, which is when we experience an old loss in a new way. And that comes in two categories. One is life milestone events. When we reach a a, typically a transition or a threshold that moves us further into adulthood or into responsibility, like a graduation or a wedding or becoming a parent, or it can move us into just another phase or stage in our life, like job loss or divorce. And we may have a response then where we're grieving for a lost loved one in a new and different way. Like when my daughter was born, I was 33 years old. My mom died when I was 17. I could not grieve the loss of my mother as a grandmother, as a resource to me, could not understand really what my mother had lost by not being able to see her first grandchild until my daughter was born. I couldn't even grieve that during my pregnancy. So there was no way I could have grieved that at 17. That grief response could only happen at 33 when I brought my daughter home from the hospital and I was sitting in my bedroom thinking, I miss my mom so much. I wish she were here. And that's what I call new old grief, because I'm experiencing that old loss in a very new way. Another form of new old grief are what are called age correspondence events. And that's typically when we reach the age ourselves, when a sibling or parent was diagnosed or died, 
and past that age and become older than they got to be. Very, very, very significant transition in the parent loss community. And no rituals to commemorate it, no acknowledgement of it. So at the aftergrief.com now there's a rituals page. And in conjunction with a, a company called Be Ceremonial in Canada, a group of motherless daughters worked with them and me, and we've created rituals for passing that threshold because there was no way to acknowledge it before. And so we have a ritual, like a boilerplate ritual that can be individualized for the relationship you had or the person who died, but at least walks you through some steps you can take to acknowledge that this is a big deal and help you move and step over the threshold into the next part of your life, carrying that person with you rather than leaving them behind. And then there's another very significant transition, which is when your child turns the age you were when a parent died or sometimes when a sibling died. Huge. Women come to motherless daughters retreats for three reasons, I have found. Number one, because they feel stuck. And part of the reason they feel stuck is because the coping patterns they developed to survive when they were young served them for quite a long time, but now they've hit some kind of impasse where it's not helping them anymore and they don't know how to change it. That's the number one reason women come. They say, I feel like a piece of me is stuck in the past or I feel stuck in my own progress. The number two reason why they come is because they're about to turn the age their mother was when she died or they just turned it. And they're having a big grief response and they want to be with people who can understand that. And the third reason is because their children are about to turn the age they were when their mother died. And they're suddenly seeing their old loss in a new way. They're seeing, I was so young. I thought I was all grown up and could handle this. You know, I convinced myself that I could soldier through this and looking at my child and how dependent they are on me. And I'm also having death anxiety, being afraid that I'm going to die and leave my child at the same age that I was. So that's the third reason why they come. These are very significant transition points and they haven't been discussed very much in literature, um, but we talk about them all the time at the retreats. I hadn't thought about it from that perspective of, I know you've, you've shared about how when you turned the age that your mother was when she died, you realized how young she was, how much more life she had to live and you grieved for what she missed in a new way. But I hadn't thought about that from seeing your child get to be the age you were and maybe having a little more compassion for yourself to be like, oh, my kid is really young and it makes sense that I wasn't able to right. respond in this way. And, and I wonder, you know, you mentioned that idea of uh, developing a coping strategy as a child or as an adolescent and then growing up and being like, oh, this is not working very well for me. Is there an example of one that you identified for yourself? Oh, yeah. I mean, at the age of 17, I had to become completely responsible for myself emotionally. And by the age of 20, I had to become responsible for myself financially. And it made me very resourceful and very independent. And that served me well for a period of time. It didn't serve me as well in my interpersonal relationships because I felt like I had to do everything myself and I wasn't good at asking for help. And that really came crashing down on me when I became a new mother because I had a, an infant who had colic and did nothing but scream for the first 10 weeks unless I was feeding her or holding her. And I was exhausted and I really needed help and I had to learn how to ask for it. It was the first time I encountered something I could not do completely on my own. I learned how to ask for help, but it wasn't easy. Um, but that sense of independence and I can do everything for myself and I'll do it best for myself, not only comes from necessity, because a lot of us did have to take care of ourselves after a parent or both parents died, but it also comes sometimes from a way to hedge against disappointment. If you had people who weren't going to show up for you, if you asked them for help and they either said yes and didn't follow through or just said no, 
sometimes our self-protective mechanism is to just do it ourselves from the start. So we don't have to be disappointed. And that was my case too. And that leads me to another thought of something you said earlier of the women who come to the motherless daughters retreats, like when their child reaches the age they were, when their parent died or their sibling died, their own worry and fear about their mortality kind of ratchets up. Yeah. And just curious from your own experience of how do you manage the anxiety that so many people after someone they are close to dies, that there's just that anxiety that I might die. So everyone else I love is going to die. And now we're doing it in a pandemic. Like how, how do you manage that? Well, the pandemic has really amped that up for a lot of people, but the pandemic has also had an opposite response, which I'll tell you about in a moment. Um, well, it becomes like a, a combination of what's called perceived vulnerability which is the belief that if a bad ha thing happened to me once, a bad thing could happen again. That's typically more about fear of someone else we love dying, but it can also be our own fear for ourselves, which is a form of death anxiety. Because they're so identified with their moms, my population is mostly women and their mothers, but I could do the same with women who lost a father, men who lost either parent. Their identity is so caught up in that relationship. They, they, it's like they, they believe histories could repeat if not going to repeat at the same age. I know I was very fearful that I was going to develop breast cancer at 41 and die of it at 42. So much so that when my second daughter was born, I thought, oh my God, we might only have five years together. That's not enough. I found it very helpful. And I find my clients, I hope, find it very helpful to really very categorically examine and explore all the ways that we are like that parent and all the ways that we aren't. Because it's, a, it's about separating from the identity, you know, the identifications and acknowledging that you are a separate person and that their destiny is not necessarily going to be yours, that you are on your own path. So let's look at all the ways that you're different from your mom, because this is probably going to be a way that's different too. I've met thousands and thousands of women who've lost their mothers. I can't honestly offhand think of any who died at the same age of their mother's disease. There are a handful who died of their mother's diseases at different ages. There are a, a little bit more than a handful who developed their mother's diseases if it were hereditary, but survived it. But it's very, very rare. You know, it's, but that's not that, I mean, we're not playing with statistics and intellect here. It's emotions. It's that, that feeling that, and that's why I find that, you know, separating that out helps a lot. You know, I've met women who say, um, I was so afraid I was going to die at the same age as my mother or that my daughter or son were going to lose me at the same age that I lost a parent, that I started preparing them for independence at a very early age. And sometimes that's good for the kids and sometimes it's not. I, I'm sure I did that. You know, I always made sure that my daughters knew how to navigate the world. Part of that was when we traveled, I would teach them, you know, how to get around and handle unfamiliar situations, know who to ask, you know, navigate subway systems in other countries. And, and that kind of backfired on me when my daughter was 17 years old and graduated high school and wanted to go to Europe for the summer with her boyfriend and said, mom, you know, I'm competent. And I said, it's not a matter of competence. It's that you're young. You know, you're only 17. It's like, I don't know. And I ultimately let her go. They went for three weeks and they had to give us an itinerary that was unchangeable or let us know if it changed. And they had to text or FaceTime us once a day. And they did brilliantly, brilliantly. But um, I hadn't quite bargained for raising a child quite that independent. <laughs> um, I guess it was a success in a way, but you know, it, it backfired a little bit that year. 
So Hope, um, I'm going to put in the show notes how people can connect with your book and connect with you. But wondering, are there some other, I know you mentioned a Facebook group and the Motherless Daughters Facebook groups, like just briefly for our listeners, how would you recommend yeah. that they connect with you and your work? Well, on Facebook, there's an After Grief community page. Anyone is welcome to join. Any adult who was bereaved in the past or anyone who has a loss in the past that, you know, is having echo effects that they and, and wants to meet other people and maybe find other people with similar losses. I also, every Tuesday now, run Motherless Daughters community calls. So if any woman who's lost a mother is welcome to join, it's um, $49 a month. You get four calls. There's guests. We um, There's open conversation. They're 90-minute calls total. Half an hour, I talk about a topic that they've chosen. Half an hour, there's a Q&A and discussion. And then there's a half an hour of facilitated open conversation where you can meet other women, find ones with stories similar to your own, talk about issues, and share your stories. It's all about story sharing, really. And so that's every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific time, 8 p.m. East Coast time. That's at motherlessdaughters.com. And then I'm, I do live events from time to time. So get on my mailing list at hopeedelman.com. Uh, and, and on my mailing list, I also talk about upcoming events. And many of them are free that people can participate in. I was just thinking about how with COVID and virtual opportunities, and almost an opening here that there's so many more ways to work with you and to be connected to the women that you support now. So I'm just, I'm really grateful for all of the work, you know, carrying forward your mother's value of giving back to the community of how much work you're doing to support folks in grief all around the world. Thank you so much. You know, for a long time, I was doing these retreats in person and you really can't duplicate the kind of bonds that form in person when you're brushing your teeth, you know, next to each other in the morning and having all your meals together. So I was very resistant to shifting any services online. But doing these community calls on Tuesday, they are international. We have women waking up at four o'clock in the morning in Russia, at one o'clock in the morning in Germany. We have women participating from Australia and Chile and Israel. And it's so beautiful that they can make these connections with women all over the world and talk to each other in real time. And I, I know I'll continue doing that even long after COVID, just for the opportunity for women to find others anywhere in the globe that who might have a story similar to their own and help them feel less alone. Well, again, Hope, thank you for your book, The After Grief, Finding Your Way Along the Long Arc of Loss, for sharing this conversation with me today, for helping so many people in the world who are grieving feel less alone and feel more seen and heard in their experience. I'm just really grateful for your time today. Thank you so much. And for all you do at the Dougie Center, you are the flagship in the country. And I've been a supporter for many, many years and hope to be for many more. And listeners out there, I say this each and every time, but thank you so much for being part of our community. The show would not mean what it means without you out there tuning in and sharing these episodes with people who you think might find them to be helpful. You can reach out to me directly at griefoutloud at dougie.org. That's D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G. And if you've missed any of our past episodes, you can find them on our website, D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G, or wherever you are currently listening to this episode. So thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time. 